Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service this morning. I feel like you're going to have to sing loud. <laughs> We're happy to um, sing this morning, and uh, we get to sing about two of my favorite subjects, the gospel and also Jesus. And our first song, I think, does a really great job of combining those two things. It talks about imputation. You can ask a kid from youth last year what that word means, but it's Jesus Messiah. So let's stand and sing together. Thank you. 
morning and welcome to church this morning if you'd like to grab your bulletin and let's read the call to worship together it's from psalm chapter 8 verse 1 O lord our lord how majestic is thy name in all the earth who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens if you'd like to bow with me let's pray our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together this morning. We thank you that we have this building, and we thank you that we have fellow believers we can gather with. We thank you that we have a pastor that can teach us your word. We pray that our hearts would be open to you as we worship you in our singing and with our prayers and as we hear from your word this morning. And we thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture reading this morning will be in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Acts chapter 4, 1 to 22, I'll be reading from the NIV. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing, standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. 
What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in, the, in this name. Then, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the, men, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. John Wesley, uh, evangelist of the 1700s in the United Kingdom and for a short time in America. Uh, he was instrumental in starting the Methodist movement. But anyway, the story is told of that one occasion he was riding along the road when it dawned on him that three whole days had passed in which he had suffered no persecution. Not a brick or an egg had been thrown at him for three days. And so he alarmed, he stopped his horse, and he exclaimed, 
Can it be that I have sinned? Am I backslidden? So he's slipping down off his horse. Wesley went down on his knees. And he began interceding and praying with God to show him where, if any, there had been a fault. The rough fellow on the other side of the hedge heard the prayer. And he looked across and he recognized the preacher. And he said, I'll fix that Methodist preacher. And he grabbed a brick and threw it at Wesley. And it missed and fell harmlessly beside Wesley. But, but Wesley leaped to his feet and joyfully claiming, thank God, it's all right. I still have his presence. And upon reading that story, I was struck by how differently Christians today would view persecution than how Wesley back in the 1700s viewed persecution. We would not rejoice in persecution. We would not view persecution as something to be expected and to feel like there was something wrong if we weren't persecuted. We would view being persecuted as something that's way out of line and something that we should file a complaint to the Human Rights Commission about. And yet Jesus told us, right from the very beginning, that persecution is something we as Christians should expect. In fact, Matthew said, in, or uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who have been persecuted. And the apostles in their writings in the New Testament tell us to consider a joy when we encounter all these various trials. And that they rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So that contrast struck me. John Wesley's mindset, mindset of the apostles, <laughs> and the mindset of most of us Christians today regarding persecution. We're getting back into our series of through the book of Acts this morning, and the passage that we come to, which was just read, records the beginning of persecution coming upon these first new Christians. So that passage, of course, is Acts 4, 1 to 22. We took a break from this series for the Christmas season. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts. And so let's do a quick review just to remind us of, where, of what's going on so we can better understand the events that we're looking at today. Back one chapter, chapter 3, is the story of Peter and John going to the temple in Jerusalem at prayer time. Well, it was 3 in the afternoon, it says. And there came upon a lame man sitting there at the temple gate begging for alms, or charitable gift of money. This man had been lame since birth. He sat there very regularly at the temple gate. Everybody knew him. Peter and John came upon him and they told him that they didn't have any money. But what they did have, they would give him. And so they looked him in the eye and they said, In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And they grasped his hands and raised him to his feet. And Jesus did a great miracle of healing for this man. His lame legs were healed and he could walk, he could leap, he could jump. And that's exactly what he did. He said, it tells us in chapter 3. He went into the temple with Peter and John, walking and leaping and praising God. Well, that kind of commotion grew or drew quite a crowd. And after a bit, Peter quieted the crowd and explained to them all what had happened. And along with that, then proceeded to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to that crowd. 
told them how Jesus, the one they had disowned and put to death, but whom God raised from the dead, as they were all witnesses of, this Jesus, who is their promised Messiah, is the one who healed this man. And Peter concluded his sermon there in chapter 3 by telling the crowd to repent so their sins could be forgiven. Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and they need to accept him as such. And so that was the message Peter preached to this crowd of people that had gathered to look at this healed lame man. And that brings us to chapter 4, where we want to look at today. And I think it would be good, first of all, for us to go through the story of the events that are recorded there in those verses, of 4 verses 1 to 22, and then we'll look at the application for us. So let's quickly go through the text. You can follow along as we go. So, moving on, obviously this kind of commotion going on in the temple is going to get a reaction from the leaders of the temple. So 4 verse 1 tells us that the leaders came. Listed there are the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. Now, just some background here. You need to remember that there are two main sects in the ranks of the religious leaders in Israel at this time. There are the Sadducees and there are the Pharisees. They were kind of at odds with each other. They worked together a lot of times, but they were kind of at odds with each other a lot of times too. The Sadducees were dominant when it came to things revolving around the, the temple and the worship of the temple and the priesthood. That was dominated by the Sadducees. The high priests at this time were always Sadducees. Most of the priests were Sadducees. The Sadducees generally took care, the ones take care of the temple and maintain order in the temple. Uh, they regarded only the first five books of the Old Testament as the inspired word of God, what Bible scholars call the Pentateuch, first five books. Uh, they put a lot of weight on those first five books and not so much on the rest. Those first five were the inspired word of God. The rest of the Old Testament, in their mind, it was valuable, but it didn't measure up to the standard of the first five books as far as being inspired by God. And most notably here for this passage is that the Sadducees did not believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. They did not believe in the resurrection. The Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, We've talked about them before. Uh, they were made up of mostly Sadducees. There was a very strong and vocal minority of Pharisees that were in the Sanhedrin as well, but they were a minority, and although they were quite vocal and quite strong, they were a minority in the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees, they sought to collaborate with Rome as much as possible to keep the peace. And by doing that, they could keep their positions of power, obviously. So they had a hidden agenda there in doing that. So, back to our passage here, chapter 4, verse 1. The people that are mentioned there are pretty much, well, yeah, they, they are all Sadducees that are coming up there to see what's going on as Peter and John are preaching. The priests, the captain of the temple guard, he's the one who was in charge of keeping order in the temple. Uh, some other Sadducees listed there. They're all Sadducees. So these people came up to this crowd listening to Peter and John preach and verse 2 tells us that they were greatly disturbed. The reason? Because Peter and John were preaching and teaching the people the resurrection from the dead. 
that came through Jesus. And Jesus had risen from dead, and in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead for everybody. That's what that was being taught. And that disturbed them greatly because they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested Peter and John. And since by this time it was evening, they put them in jail for the night to bring them to trial the next day. But the sermon had already been preached. And the power of the Holy Spirit behind that sermon had already gone out to the people. So many people accepted the gospel, the gospel message as preached by Peter and John, and accepted Jesus as their Messiah. So the total number of Christians now came to about 5,000 men, it says, and we assume it would be plus women and children. Now remember, on the first day, the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, it says 3,000 came to the Lord that day and were baptized. So now the number had grown to over 5,000 people. So the next day came, and Peter and John were brought before the Jewish leaders for trial. And again, a number of these Jewish leaders that were there for their trial, they're identified for us. There was Caiaphas and Annas. Um, it says here Annas was the high priest. And I didn't quite do enough research on this, I guess, because when the Jesus trials, it was Caiaphas who was the high priest. Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. Annas had been the high priest, and uh, Caiaphas was the next high priest after Annas, but Annas continued to hold a lot of power there in the Sanhedrin and in the goings-on there in, in Jewish life. So whether there was a change in Annas was now high priest, this was only, only a few weeks later after Jesus six weeks, couple months maybe, uh, or whether the Sanhedrin was such an old boys club that even though Annas was not officially the high priest, in actuality, practical purposes, he was the high priest. I, I don't know, I didn't do all that research. But Annas was there, Caiaphas was there at this trial, um, and lists are some other, John and Alexander, two people we know nothing about, other rulers and elders and scribes. So I think it was the actual Sanhedrin. Later on it talks about the Sanhedrin or the council. So it was before this group, the council, the Sanhedrin, all these people that Peter and John are brought to trial. And the question put to Peter and John was in verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? We assume they're talking about the miracle of this lame man walking. By what power, by what authority have you done this here in our temple and caused this commotion? And probably likely includes a sermon that they preach. By what authority do you say the things you're saying? So Peter took the lead in responding. Verse 8 and following, you can follow along. Uh, he said he's filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was in him. Holy Spirit was controlling him. Full of the Holy Spirit, Peter answered. You can read that answer there, verses 8 through 12. He told them straight out that it was Jesus Christ the Nazarene who did the miracle. The same Jesus whom they crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. He was the one. It was by his name that this man stands before you now in good health. So here we learn that this layman who was healed, he's also there at this trial. He's standing right there. But Peter goes on, this Jesus whom they crucified and whom God raised from the dead is in fact the stone which was rejected by them, Jewish leaders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. 
and Peter is quoting there from Psalm 118, verse 22, saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament scripture. And then Peter makes a very profound closing statement in verse 12. As that cornerstone, salvation for us is tied up in Jesus Christ alone. There is no salvation in anyone else. There is no other person under heaven that, must, that has been given to us by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He is the one. He's the only one whom God has sent to us to give us salvation. There's no other means of salvation save in Jesus Christ alone. That was Peter's closing statement to these Sadducees, to these Jewish leaders. Well, the Jewish leaders heard what Peter said, and they looked at Peter and John, and they saw the confidence they had. Their boldness. Their courage, their command of the scriptures. And they knew that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. And by that it means that Peter and John had never been to the rabbinical schools. Thus they had no formal education in the Old Testament law like they all had. They were fishermen. And it all came to look very familiar to these Jewish leaders. They recognized these men as having been with Jesus. <laughs> it had been the same thing with Jesus. Jesus had no formal education either, but he astounded them and, and <laughs> proved his knowledge of the scriptures was better than any of those Sadducees or Pharisees or any other Jewish leader. It's all looked very familiar. They recognized them as having been with Jesus. They're emulating Jesus. Peter and John are emulating Jesus here. So what could the Jewish leaders do? The man who had been healed was standing right there. <laughs> so they had, they had nothing really they could say. So they dismissed Peter and John and they conferred among themselves. What are we going to do? We can't deny the miracle. The guy's right here. Everybody knew him before. They can see him now. And see the miracle that has taken place. But we cannot let this go any further. So here's what we'll do. We'll warn them and command them not to speak anymore about Jesus. So they called Peter and John back in and gave them the word. They commanded them to never again speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Well, Peter and John didn't hesitate to answer. You can read there in verse 19 to 20 what the answer was. You can kind of hear them get a bit of a snicker and, and say, well, whether it's right for us to obey God or obey you, well, you'd be the judge of that. But we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't st stop teaching what Jesus the Messiah told us to teach and preach. We're going to keep on teaching and preaching. Pretty straightforward. There's no way Peter and John were going to stop preaching and teaching Jesus. All the Jewish leaders at this point, at this point in time could do was to give further threats. And I imagine warning them of dire circumstances, dire consequences, if they did keep on preaching and teaching. And then they let them go. They had no basis to punish Peter and John. People in general, they were all praising God for the miracle. Uh, and verse 22 closes with the words that this man who had been lame from birth and had been healed, he was more than 40 years old. He was obviously way beyond the chance of any natural cure happening. That ship had sailed. Uh, the time for him to naturally 
grow out of it, whatever the problem was, whatever the deformity was, to grow out of it, that, that had come and gone a long time ago. The point of him being over 40 years old, just to emphasize the point, this is obviously a miracle from God. So that's the story of these verses. It is the story of the beginning of persecution coming upon the apostles, and by extension, these new believers. And as we go on through the book of Acts, as we will in the months, weeks and months to come, we're going to see this persecution intensify as we go through the book of Acts. This is the beginning of it. How does it apply to us today? That's the question we need to answer. How does this apply to us today? Well, let's look at it. As Christians, we need some guidance in knowing how to respond to persecution. And a study of the examples that come out of Acts 4, verses 1 through 22 will give us that guidance, I think, that we need. Two basic things that I want to look at, just two this morning. So, I hope you're not too disappointed that I don't have my usual three points. Only two. Bummer, eh? Number one. First example I see here, keep pointing everything back to Jesus. That's our first example, our first... Yeah, first example to guide us. Keep pointing everything back to Jesus. I'm impressed that when the religious leaders confronted Peter and John, demanding to know what they were doing and by what authority they were doing it, without hesitation, Peter and John pointed straight at Jesus. If you're wondering about this sick man being healed, you need to know that it was Jesus who healed him. They didn't try to take any credit for themselves. They had no power in and of themselves to do anything. It was Jesus. They were just instruments used by Jesus to do the work. They were just there doing what Jesus, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit, had told them to do. And notice that Peter got a bit more specific when he talked about Jesus. In speaking to these Jewish leaders, he says, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that Jesus. Now, Jewish leaders knew exactly who they were talking about. It had only been a couple of months at most since these very same Jewish leaders had orchestrated the events to get Jesus killed. You need to remember that as you read this. It's only been the most two months since Jesus' death and resurrection. When this is happening here, They, had, they were the very ones who orchestrated the event to get Jesus crucified. And then three days later, when the tomb was empty, they had no way of explaining it. They could not disprove the apostles' claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't believe it, but they couldn't disprove it. <coughs> Excuse me, please. Excuse me a second. So when Peter's talking, he said, Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, that Jesus. That's the Jesus Peter's talking about. That's the Jesus Peter's pointing toward. He did the miracle. And I think that's a good example for us. If and when we get persecuted for our faith, for our actions, as we obey our Savior, a good thing to do is just to keep pointing everything back to Jesus. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus told us to do. 
What's happening is the work of Jesus. And it is likely good and necessary for us to remind people just who Jesus is. Likely more so for us than for Peter and John and their dealing with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders knew which Jesus. <laughs> Peter reminded them anyway. But in our world today, many people have heard about Jesus. But very few people know the real Jesus. They have some vague idea of who he was and what he taught. But there's a very good chance that most of what they think about Jesus is wildly inaccurate. There's <laughs> a very good chance of that. Jesus has become some kind of a vague idea that people have made up in their minds. Very few know the real Jesus as presented in the scriptures. So when we point them to Jesus, it's likely a good idea to also remind them or tell them exactly who Jesus is. Like Peter did for these Jewish leaders here, although they knew very well. But our persecutors likely won't know the real Jesus. <laughs> so it'll likely be necessary in pointing everything back to Jesus to explain just who Jesus is. Jesus. Jesus, God come in the human form, who was born of a virgin, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. That Jesus. Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life and then was crucified and then raised from the dead. That Jesus. Jesus, the one who gave us, as his followers, the orders to tell everyone about him, which is what we're doing. That's the Jesus we're pointing to. The one who is the chief cornerstone of all that God is doing on this earth. That Jesus. That is the Jesus we are following. That is the Jesus we are obeying. It's all about him. And if your persecutors want to know why we're doing what we're doing or why we're teaching what we're teaching, it's all about this Jesus. We're just teaching what he told us to teach. We're just doing what he told us to do. He is our authority. Keep pointing everything back to Jesus. Secondly, second example here, similar, but there's a different <laughs> emphasis that I'd like to bring out. Keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. Keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. I want you to look at here at verse 12 and also verses 19 to 20. The statement from Peter in verse 12 is very straightforward, very cut and dry. Jesus, the key, chief cornerstone, is God's answer to the salvation problem of every human on earth. Jesus, God come as a human, came to this earth to live a perfect life, to be crucified and die, to pay the penalty for our sin that we deserve to pay. Jesus, the one who rose from the dead to conquer sin and to conquer death. Jesus, having done all of that, can now offer salvation to all of us and will freely give it to all who repent of their sin and accept him as their Messiah and Savior and place their faith in him alone. These are salvation. And so Peter says there in verse 12, there is no salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no one else who can offer us the salvation that we need. And that's the essence of the gospel. 
the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died and rose again in payment for our sin. He is the only one who can offer us salvation from the penalty of our sin, which is separation from God in hell for all eternity. Jesus is the only one that can offer us salvation from that. There is no one else. There is salvation in no one else. That's the gospel message that Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach. Look over to verses 19 and 20. Let's read them again. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So Peter says, when it comes to whether to obey you or to obey God, I guess that's up to you. But we're never going to stop speaking what we have seen and heard. We're going to obey God. Jesus told us to preach the gospel to everyone and we are going to obey God rather than you. We're not going to stop. And that too is a great example for us to follow when and if we come up against persecution. This is where we have to draw the line. We have to keep preaching the gospel. That's what Jesus died for us. For. That gospel that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead. And we need to repent and place our faith in him. That there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus. We have to keep preaching that. No matter what orders we are given from anybody who is higher up. We have to keep preaching this. And I think we can all see and feel that the powers that be in our society are slowly tightening the circle around us as Christians. I don't know how many of you are aware of the thing that just passed in the legislature, the conversion therapy, the bill against banning conversion therapy and including that is that it sounds like the way it's written it is almost going to be illegal for us to counsel anyone who is struggling with same-sex attraction or gender uh, confusion to even try to talk them into the road of thinking about what Jesus would say and what Jesus would want for them that that will be illegal for us as Christians to do that? They said, it's, we can feel the powers in our society slowly tighten the rope around us. Persecution's coming. And I think in obedience to our Savior, we should be subject to our governing authorities as much as possible, but when it comes to the gospel message, when it comes to the truth of God's word, we draw the line. No matter what they command or legislate, we will never stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that it means and all that it implies. We will never stop standing up for the, and preaching the truth of God's word and how Jesus is the cornerstone of all of that and the need for people everywhere to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus and accept him as their savior. Because that's the only way. We can't stop preaching that and teaching that. So I think Peter and John left us a good example 
of refusing to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus, even when commanded not to. Because there is no other way of salvation. And I think that's a great example for us to follow. One we need to follow. So therefore we see from this passage this morning a couple of examples that give us the guidance we need in responding to persecution. They are, number one, keep pointing everything back to Jesus. Number two, keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. As I said, this kind of persecution for us may not be that far away. Jesus told us to expect it way back in the, when he was on earth. He told us to expect it. It's going to happen. We're told in the New Testament to actually rejoice when we encounter it. Jesus told us we're blessed when we face it and go through it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we need to know how to face it. And the apostles here gave us a, good, a couple of good examples. So let's prepare ourselves and let's let these examples guide us. So let's just take our time of silence again. I'm not sure what God is saying to each of us here personally, but he's probably saying something. <laughs> so I will just encourage you in this time of silence to open your heart and listen. What is God saying to me personally here this The next one I chose is Build Your Kingdom Here, which we haven't done for a long time. But um, more of a prayer, less of a demand. The way the song is written, it kind of seems like a demand. But God is sovereign. He will build his kingdom here. He says it. Um, um, but as you sing it, I think as a, a prayer for, for God to use us in how he builds his kingdom. So let's stand and sing.
And our final song is Total Switch in uh, Speed. But it, it is well with my soul. And Cam suggested this one, and I think it's a great um, wrap-up to that as we give like give our lives to Christ. We spread the gospel. We do what he wants us to do rather than what we ourselves want to do. That's when it's well.
you very soon.